0: Hello. Oh, it's so weird when Carol's not here, but that's okay. Hi, everybody. Hello, Kevin. How are you I doing, Kevin? There we go. Can you I hear can me? Okay. Hear you. Yep. So, You're Kevin, through. You have your big, yes. big day tomorrow. Yep. Awesome. Yep. I'm. I'm excited. I'm. My. I can't stand. Having everything moving around. I just want it to be stable. Yes. Stability is a good thing. We're going to talk all about stability today. (laughs) Me on my own. So, what happened to Kevin? Minette asks Kevin fractured his clavicle, bike riding too fast, too crazily, whatever it was. No, I wasn't looking where I was going. That typically seems to help avoid injuries when you're watching. (laughs) When you're. Oh no. Okay. Um all right. We're gonna get going. Go ahead and turn stuff off. Okay, I'm going to share my screen because as promised, today I have a fun and action-filled webinar about all things that you guys wrote in to share. So hopefully this helps, Kevin. I'm so glad you're here. Kevin's going to disappear for a little while. I'm going to share my screen. So I'm really bad at multitasking these days. So I do see a Q&A that just popped up. Hi Kim, hi Kevin, I leave. So before I get going, typically when I do these webinars, I ask everybody to hold the Q&A for designated Q and A times, just because it's hard when you're a one man show to see the Q and A pop up and to be really efficient. So I have exact. 60 slides. I don't know if we'll get through it, but I do know that a lot of the questions that people had asked or topics when I'd asked people to write in, what do you want me to talk about today? Ankle sprains were the big one because when I had Peter Twist on, I started talking about it and then people were like, Hey, that was really great. Can you do that again? So I'm going to finish that ankle sprain and strain talk because I think for the most part, no matter if you're in functional medicine or physical medicine or whatever kind of medicine, we see a lot of ankle strains and sprains, or your family member is going to get them. So I do want to talk about that. Somebody had wrote in last week about plantar fasciitis. So I threw a couple of those slides in there. And if we're talking about ankle sprains and strains, and we're talking about plantar fasciitis, then we have to talk about some of the neat things that you're going to see like Osgood-Schlatter's and runner and jumper's knee, which I hate those terms. And if we have time to get to it, some shin splints, but these all kind of mesh together. And I'm going to talk about just some little tips and tricks that you can add on along with the frequencies. So I'm going to try to look at the chat and Q&A. And Kevin, you can do something to make me get the Q&A going if I forget, but let's just get into it because I talk fast. We all know what a uh, ankle sprain looks like, but there really is important to think of there's two types. We all know that there's different grades, but the two types is really important because you're going to treat them a lot differently with frequencies. So Our most common type of ankle sprain or strain is going to be an inversion, right? That's that rolling over that's in the picture right now. Those of you listening on the podcast, I'm going to do a really good job of verbally explaining all my little slides and pictures here. But the inversion rolling from the outside, having the ankle turn inward is the most common. It's just structurally the less sound stability. If you go from the medial part of the foot and evert, it's actually really strong. So we don't really see a ton of sprains and strains this way, except of really extreme force. So obviously there's trauma that are occurring to the ligaments on that outer ankle, most commonly that anterior talofibular ligament. We see the calcaneofibular fibular ligament and the posterior talofibular ligament are going to be the ones that you're going to look out for. But when you see a high ankle sprain, we're looking more at that syndesmotic membrane that's binding the tibia and the fibula together. That's why it's called a high ankle sprain because it's higher up in the leg. These are extremely painful sprains and strains. Obviously, it's located above all those other ligaments that we were just talking about, which is why we call it a high ankle sprain. You'll also hear it called a syndesmotic injury or an interosseous membrane injury or a high ankle sprain. So if you see those terms, it's because the membrane that is connecting those two bones is traumatized and that's what it's affecting. Like I said, it's less common. Um, that could be arguably different depending on if you're somebody who's in sports medicine, if you're working for a team with football, basketball, we typically soccer, we typically see in this picture, there's that lateral force to the knee, like a blow. So somebody coming at you at a high rate of force. And then that head of that talus is stopped. So there's almost like a torque that happens with that force. And that's what ends up rupturing all the ligature inside the so high versus low quick summary. Those of you who have taken my webinars before know that I summarize everything and I have charts everywhere. This is the way I learn. Low ankle sprain, dorsiflexion, plantar flexion, inversion. That is the mechanism of injury that's happening there. Typically a pretty easy and short recovery. We see it a lot with soccer and basketball. Again, that anterior talofibular and talocalcaneal ligature is what's going to be affected. But in our high ankle sprains, there's more of that external rotation mechanism. So that slide where that foot is planted, and then somebody's coming from the lateral side, there's a bit of torque, a bit of rotation that's happening high up. And then you get that torque, which is causing that interosseous membrane to tear. These are a little more complicated. The recovery is typically longer, very painful.' seen in hockey, football skiing, again, any anytime where that foot is planted and the lateral force is coming from up above causing that. The interosseous membrane in the high ankle sprain is crucial. So it is not the same as a low ankle sprain or that really common inversion sprain when you see this clinically because of what you can do with microcurrent. So we have a sprained ankle. When is this patient seeing you? This is always like one of the first questions that I ask practitioners who call me or email me and ask for advice. What stage of healing are you seeing this patient in? Because before you can even give advice, you need to know where they are in their healing. Are they in the acute stage? Are they in the subacute stage? Are they actually in the chronic stage? And have tried every other modality out there to help heal them. And then they're finding you. Obviously, this is going to help dictate what frequencies you're going to use. And if you even have to see them in the clinic. So a lot of times, and I'll get to this, but a lot of times when you are seeing patients and they're calling you, especially those of you who work with athletes, they call you hopefully first right away because they know that if you get FSM on them right away, you're going to increase the chances of healing exponentially. So in that acute phase, before you panic and are thinking, oh my goodness, I have no time in my books to see the person. Do you actually have to touch them in that acute phase. And in acute, I mean, like the first four hours, probably not too much hands-on manual therapy going on there, unless you're doing some lymph drainage, maybe above the site to help aid in inflammation. So in that acute phase, acute sprains, strains, and fractures, let's treat them like the acute condition that they are. Hopefully we are seeing people in that four-hour window and your goal and that super acute phase is to be as specific with the tissue type as possible. We want to make sure that we are those really easy, no-brainer frequencies that we're going to use in the initial phases, like 40 and 18 and 124, the inflammation, stop the bleeding, the torn and broken. There's obviously a few more options there, but those are really our big three, our favorite three we want to make sure that we're not wasting time and sending them to tissues that aren't really indicated. So is the muscle belly really indicated in a sprain and strain? It is a little bit. I for sure would maybe do a drive-by on there. But the main thing, especially if we're talking with the high ankle sprain, is to be really specific with the tissue type. Remember, 124 is time-dependent. So if we know for a fact something is torn and broken, so something is acutely sprained or strained or fractured. It is torn and broken. We know without a shadow of a doubt, we need to run 120 for a very long time. Let's be specific as possible with that B channel. So we're not wasting hours and hours treating tissues that aren't indicated. So that's why I try to be really specific as quickly as possible. Like I said, in this acute phase, this is typically an unassisted or take-home job for the custom care. You don't want to have a patient occupying Your valuable time in your clinic for an hour and a half or two hours when all you're really running is torn and broken on the tendon torn and broken on the ligament torn and broken on the connective tissue why would you do that to yourself so put them in another room with the custom care or send them home with a custom care if that's what you do i know dr Mcmakin doesn't like to rent out the custom cares I always rent up my custom cares. So however it works in your business model, make it happen for that patient and you don't need to occupy your valuable time. In that acute painful stage, <laughs> that is the important part of that sentence. In the acute stage, it is very painful. I should have re- rewrote that. If the patient does not get a dramatic decrease in pain in the first, I'm going to say one treatment. I know my slide says two, but in that first treatment, if their pain doesn't drop, you might not see them for a second or a third appointment. So I know sometimes we get so caught up in what do we run? And when Dr. McMakin and I are talking on the podcast with the chronic pain patients and Carol will say, I just don't want to make them worse. Yes, of course, we don't want to make them worse, but we also want to get their pain down, especially in something super easy with physical medicine, like a sprained ankle. So get them out of pain is public enemy number one. But then I think it's really important to lay out a long-term plan and long-term, I mean, like a week or two weeks, because the healing is part of it, but making sure their pain is down is what's going to refer more patients to you. And the fact that you sped up their healing is also going to refer more patients to you, but you really want somebody to come into your clinic who is in a lot of pain. You want them leaving with a good dent in that pain. So Your three primary A-channel go-tos that are going to help with pain reduction are going to be 40, 124, and I really like 321 on my A-channels, right? That's that Abrams trauma paralysis and histamine, all those initial, the basics that we have on our laminate are really helpful to get that patient out of pain. And like we say in the court, 124 is going to get them out of pain. Pretty instantaneously, but we need to run it for a longer period of time to really aid in the healing. So that's why it's time dependent. And then your B favorites again, this is really specific to an ankle 783, the periosteum, right? That's what is really painful, especially when you have like ruptures. And we'll get to some of that a little bit later on. The tensile pull off the periosteum, regardless if the strain or sprain is actually in that like tendon body. The peri, it's there's still that traction on the periosteum, is what's going to cause the pain and that's going to start the bleeding process. So, 783 is a big one. 191, the tendon or the ligament or 100. 157, the joint surface can be very helpful also. And 77 is connective tissue. We see that a lot with that high ankle sprain. And you'll see that in just one second. So your ankle sprain B channels, this is for your normal inversion, like straight up rolled, stepped off a curb, rolled my ankle. The big one is going to be the ligament. That's typically what is torn and strained. Number one is your ligament. So that's the first one that you're going to go to. But like I said, you're going to go to the periosteum. You're going to think about the connective tissue because 77 is everywhere. 77 is really well indicated in my world in the musculotendinous junction. So as you have that tendon, 191, as the tendon turns into that muscle body, there's a space where it goes from tendon to connective tissue to muscle. So we want to make sure we're treating that connective tissue for the musculotendinous junction. 142, the fascia is everywhere. And of course, 396, the nerve is going to be involved. That's going to help them with pain. Going now back to that high ankle sprain, we really see ligament again, 100, but 77 is your absolute have to have to go there and spend a lot more time there. That is the interosseous membrane. So The interosseous membrane is 77. That is connective tissue. But as you can see, or if you want to pull it up on netters or just Google it, what that interosseous membrane looks like, it attaches the tibia and the fibula together via the periosteum. So when those two bones get mobilized during that high ankle sprain, you want to talk, you want to make sure you're hitting on the periosteum to promote the healing and to decrease the pain. And again, of course, the fascia is everywhere and the nerve is everywhere. So this is just a little a little slide indicating what the inversion, eversion, high ankle looks like, just to get a visual, those of you listening on the podcast, my apologies, you can look this up on YouTube, but it's just talking about inversion, eversion, high ankle, and the ligaments that we typically see. When I teach a sports course, I always say, does it really matter if it's the calcaneal fibular ligament or the deltoid ligament? Not as far as frequency goes because ligament is ligament. It's a hundred, but just for your own sanity and to understand what you're looking at, I'm an anatomy geek. So i like to know where I'm looking at. And again, that syndesmotic tear, syndesmosis or interosseus, however you want to phrase it is that internal sort of membrane that gets tractioned and torn. So your summary, pretty basic stuff here, folks, stop the bleeding, torn and broken the base inflammation. I do write it in the muscle as well, because the muscles are going to be involved. Like the force, the mechanism of injury didn't happen from outer space. A meteor didn't come and crash into them. They were probably doing something. So that's why you'll see muscle and fascia involved there. I like to run the emotional components right away. When I first started practicing, I never ran the emotional components and that came back and bit me. So I always run it right away. People are um, emotional about an injury. It's not, Whether it's a professional athlete or not, there, there is something emotional about being hurt. I think it's wise to run it. You could run the specific emotions. You can run just 970 in the muscle or the fascia, which is what I do on the background sometimes. And then I really like to increase the secretions to the fascia and the vitality to the area also right away. Why not? It's traumatized. So again, there's that fine line between pulling things out, we're pulling the torn and broken, we're pulling the bleeding, we're pulling the inflammation, give it the good stuff that it's that it needs to heal. Why is the shingle virus one in there? Because sometimes it's not a sprain. This is pulled from the core, this acute new injury summary. So if beyond a shadow of a doubt that this person rolled their ankle and we have a straight up sprain, do you have to run the shingles virus stuff? No. Sometimes we We get people come in as a giant package where all of a sudden they have pain in the shoulder or pain in their leg. And if it's following a shingles dermatome, you might think, did you really sprain your ankle? Or maybe it's something else. So that's why that's in there. We typically run things on a gentle wave slope. It doesn't always have to be alternating. I typically always go positive with my athletes, but it's worth the shot to try alternating first because in a new injury, sometimes polarized positive can be super irritating. When we have a subacute stage of healing, depending on what textbook you're reading, sometimes we see subacute in hours. Sometimes we see subacute in days. However you're sorting that out, it's not the first couple days. It's not the first couple hours. We still, if we're getting that patient who says, I rolled my ankle a week ago, or it was a few days ago, this is where you're probably going to start because we missed that four hour window. But we still want to make sure we're promoting that inflammatory check we still want to promote rapid healing. Is 18 less important? I think it is. Is it indicated for sure things probably blood at some point, which is why we see 18 in a chronic injury. but do you have to spend as much time on it in, as in the first four hours? No. We really want to encourage pain free movement in the subacute stage. So when patients hurt themselves, it hurts, we don't move it. Right away, we start seeing restricted blood flow, restricted range of motion, scar tissue, altered mechanics. So we want to make sure that patient is moving. That's that part of math, right? Movement, elevation, traction, and heat. I will start immediately with muscle setting exercises, which can also be called isometrics. You want to make sure there's a contraction. You want to make sure you're sending nerve impulses to the area. We just don't want to avoid. That's what we used to do a long time ago. We would immobilize. We would ignore the area. Leave it alone. It'll heal. No, it never happens like that. So move, move. As long as it's pain-free, we want to promote that. So in the case of an ankle, an open chain exercise is going to be indicated before a closed chain exercise. So open chain, non-weight bearing, closed chain is weight bearing. So open chain, something really easy like dorsiflexion and plantar flexion and a sprained ankle, toes come up, toes come down. You can start doing inversion and eversion. Now, of course, inversion is probably going to be more painful because that was the mechanism they rolled over. They're not going to want to go there. You can go there a little bit, have them go in a pain-free range. Just go inward as much as you can. Just go everting as much as you can. Dorsiflexion and plantar flexion are going to be much easier for you to do. Plantar flexion and dorsiflexion are really important, even though it's not the mechanism of the injury, because you have something called the skeletal muscle pump that's happening in your calf. So pumping your ankle up and down can be really helpful in naturally pulling lymphatics out of the ankle. Alphabet. Yes. I always tell my patients just draw the alphabet with their toes. We talked about this a couple podcasts ago. It's one of the easiest things you can tell your patient instead of saying, I want you to perform 20 reps of dorsiflexion and then 20 reps. No one's going to listen to that. But if I say, you know what, when you're sitting on the couch or when you're sitting at your office and your foot is, your legs are crossed or your foot is up, why don't you just draw the alphabet in capital letters with your foot and just go A to Z. And people typically adhere to that really easily, as opposed to something really rigid. There's a little example of A, B, and C, not hard to do, not hard to visualize. So a chronic sprain is obviously something that happened a little while ago. It could be a patient could walk in and say, I had this sprain ages ago, and it, I never was the same. I've always had ankle pain since there. So typically we call this like the painfully healed or chronically re-injured person. So someone who's had the pain there or the person that had the sprained ankle years ago and keeps on spraining it. So this can take a little more detective work. Anything chronic is, a, you have to ask a few more questions, make sure you're digging and getting all the information about the injury and trying to get all the imaging that was done because- that can really help you just right off the bat say, Oh, you actually tore this or that, or I know patients have a funny way of remembering things too. So they could tell you the mechanism of injury. And then once you get the imaging, it's completely different. You're like, are you sure you rolled your foot off the curb or did this happen? So gathering up as many pieces of information is as necessary, but also do your own range of motion. So While it's important to gather up all the old imaging and I like to call the people that they've seen and talk to the practitioners, what worked, what didn't work. I think it's really important for you to do your own range of motion. What do you feel is restricted in that joint? What do you feel is weak in that area? What are their reflexes like? So gather up other people's information, but I think it's really important for you to do your own. And then In that chronic, again, I love renting out the custom cares. So I will have people in my clinic using my precision care and then the custom cares. And then I really like, especially with new patients, to give them something to go home to promote the healing because I just feel like I get a better starting point for treatment number two and number three. So however you support that. In that chronic, painfully healed, chronically re-injured area, you will probably find scar tissue. Something probably healed improperly and they could be re injuring it because there's chronic tightness. So, my favorite slide from the core is that telephone visual, right? Or- I really date myself once upon a time when telephones had cords, they were in a coil like a slinky. And then the next question is what's a slinky? So you have these coils that go round and round, and the adhesions that form are the bonds that hold these little coily parts together. 13 can be fantastic for de- dissolving those little cross links that are within the scar tissue. What's important with 13, as we all know, is it likes to be mobilized, right? So you have this coil, you have the crossings that are in there. And just imagine those of you who are old enough to have a curly phone cord when I had to stretch it across the kitchen and hide in the pantry to talk to my boyfriend. That phone cord was stretched and instead of being coiled, it was almost straight. We don't have to do that to the extreme with connective soft tissue, but we want to mobilize it a little bit. Mobilization can come in many different forms, it can come in the form of actual range of motion, having them actively or passively move their limb through space. It can come in the form of you doing manual therapy to the soft tissue to create the space. So there's lots of different ways one can mobilize the area. So again, channel 13 on eight is the frequency that loosens the bonds that holds the connective tissue in that scar configuration. We use it for all scar tissue. It works fantastic. We wanna mobilize it. See, I told you I can remember everything without looking at my slides. So the other useful chronic protocols, 40, yes. Just because it's chronic doesn't mean we don't use it. There's lots of times when there's a chronic injury and I am using a lot of manual therapy. I am using a lot of range of motion. I am using a lot of frequency and we're blowing apart all the scar tissue why not run 40 right after to help? I think of that in that case as a little vacuum that comes in and cleans up all the debris. So we can still use it in the case of cleaning up the debris and we use it especially in the case of quieting the nervous system down. So we can use it with the spinal cord, we can use it with the medulla, we can use it with 89, people who are scared to have treatment and they don't want to move it after. We can use it with the nerve because the nerve is probably adhered and irritated. So 40 is still useful in chronic times, but 91, right? When we think of something chronic after 13, we like to talk about the hardening, the calcification that happens. So that's 91. We have 284 for chronic inflammation. We have 51 for fibrosis. We've got this little trifecta for mineral deposits, 766, 276, 242. That can be really cool. in the ankle in between the, the tarsals, you can do mobilization with those, especially in the really chronic cases. I love those. And don't forget sclerosis and the adipose. Those of you who are listening, you've been to the sports course. I talk about that one slide where they did all this imaging of the lower leg and found that the gastrocnemius had the highest amount of this intermuscular adipose, this IMAT mat intermuscular adipose tissue, which every time I talk about it, I get this confused look on my face because I think of the gastroc as a super like lean, fast twitch muscle. It shouldn't have fat in it, but it does. So when we're working with the ankle, we are working with the lower leg. We are working with the foot right? Nothing happens in a vacuum. Nothing happens in isolation. So don't forget three and 97 sclerosis in the adipose in those chronic cases. I'm talking fast because we have a lot to get through. So this cycle that we see in chronic cases, we have an injury and then the cerebellum decreases all the signals to the injury site to protect it. It has really good intentions, but when the motor control center says, listen, I get that you're not sending signals here, but we really have to move our foot. So we're going to send other people to come in and help. So we get brand new recruitment of suboptimal muscle patterning. And then after a while, the cerebellum's like, eh, you guys are doing a pretty good job. I don't even know if the other guys are healed anymore, but let's just keep walking like this. So we get this really jerky, bad cycle that we have to interrupt. And that's where this restore the coordinated movement, what we're doing with this new, what I call reboot. This is treating the cerebellum and treating the sensory and motor cortex. Yes, it's an ankle injury, but there's a central nervous system component, especially in the chronic cases from my athletes in the acute stage. They get this right away because I don't want their cerebellum, to have any sort of long-lasting relationship with this injury. I want everybody to forget that it happened as quickly as possible. So we use 81 and 84, 81, 92 for, for help with that. Hopefully everybody still can see everything. I got this little memo that just popped up on the screen. So we use it after injury. We use it after rehab. We use it during rehab. We definitely want to use movement with 81 and 84. So movement doesn't have to be so complex. I'm a biomechanics geek, but if you have somebody, if it's an ankle injury, have them go up on their tiptoes, have them stand on their heels and raise their feet. Anything that you can think of to get plantar flexion, dorsiflexion, inversion, eversion can be really easily applied. Some balance pads, put them on an unstable surface so that in bare feet. So they have to make those little corrections with their feet and then using in my opinion, 94, not so much, 321, not so much. I use a lot of just 81 and 92, 81, 84 with active movement. So we help the brain find the tissue by increasing the secretions, the sensory and motor cortex with the pattern. And I'll give you an example right away of what that looks like. Again, a chart here. What are your treatment goals? Don't get so discombobulated when a patient comes in any of those phases because your treatment goals should always start with decreasing or removing the pain. Um, typically decreasing the inflammation will help with that. And then once that can take place, then we can improve the healing of the, of all the tissue and of the fractured area or the torn and broken area. And then we want to make sure that we are increasing the tissue flexibility and pliability. I have here the quads. Sorry about that. I had a, I pulled this from another talk that I gave, but the soft tissue flexibility and pliability is very important in any stage because yes, we're treating the torn and broken and all those things, but we really want to make sure that the pliability of all that connective tissue stays in check. And then reminding the nervous system that this is okay. Yes, we sprained our ankle, but we're going to be just fine. I see that there's a chat and a question. I'm going to just get through this and then I'm going to go back there. So that frequency with muscle setting, using that wipe and load that we talked about in the sports course, but predominantly 40 and 89 is that wipe. You don't be scared. We can do this. And then loading it with the good stuff, 81, 84, 81, 92. We're trying to make sure that the nervous system doesn't want to put those compensatory motor patterns in there. So that is our goal at that phase, especially to interrupt that splinting cycle is what we call it. So muscle setting exercises, like I talked about, doesn't have to be super complicated. Bilateral standing barefoot, okay? That's a muscle setting exercise, weight bearing. Have them stand on just one leg on a stable surface, on a yoga mat on the floor. Have them try bilateral standing with their eyes closed. Just standing there, close your eyes watch to see what happens to the foot mechanics and the ankle mechanics when we've taken off the horizon, when we can't use our eyes to help us and we're relying solely on those joint kinesthetic receptors. So we can graduate from a stable surface to an unstable surface. You can use foam pads, you can use a BOSU ball, anything that's going to challenge the stability of the joint receptors. I'm not sure if this video will play. Those of you listening to the podcast, this is a gentleman who is just walking toe heel with the custom care on the track after we've done some lower body kind of rebuilding, took apart an old injury and we wanna help connect everything back again. So we have somebody walking with that wipe and load just up and down the track. They'll walk normal heel toe. Then I'll have them walk toe heel. I can have them do it eyes closed. And then once that looks pretty normal, in my opinion, as I'm watching them, then I will have them actually run with the custom care. And I typically am not going to say anything in the first little while. I'm hoping that they're going to mechanically sort things out, but we want to make sure they are supported in these very early return to function, return to sport phases. So obviously we want to walk before we can run. So that's what that looks like. I'm going to, before I go to plantar fasciitis, let me just ask, oh, thanks, John, for the awesome slides. I am more than happy to send these slides to anybody. If you want to just send me an email, I see Cynthia wrote a long question. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to get to that because I'm going to just stick with what I'm going to talk about. So Cynthia, if I don't get to it, remember it and we'll get to it the next podcast. So as promised plantar fasciitis, I think John, you were the one that asked for, for this one. This is my love-hate. Plantar fasciitis can be so frustrating. And I think that's why I get so many people that are like, what am I missing? It's so difficult. It can be super difficult to treat. Where did it come from? That's your first question. And people are like, what are you talking about? It's plantar fasciitis. Plantar fasciitis doesn't come from outer space. There's always some weird onset that started the whole thing. In my opinion, plantar fasciitis asking where did it come from is more important than the patient's pain levels. It's more important than the chronicity. It's more important what they've done to alleviate it. You you really want to dial in where did it come from? So the plantar fascia is, this isn't a great slide. This isn't a great video for it, but you can see what we're taught. The plantar fascia just runs along the plantar aspect of the foot—it's really common. We see two million patients are treated for this condition every year. I think it's actually higher. I think this slide is a couple years old. Plantar fasciitis occurs when that strong band of the tissue that supports that longitudinal arch of your foot becomes irritated and inflamed. And it typically—it typically is just that it is very irritated. It'll feel very tight. It'll feel hot. You'll get all those cardinal signs and symptoms of inflammation. So when this damage occurs on the plantar part of the foot, we see inflammation, tearing, and bruising can occur in the foot. So I have these highlighted in red because hopefully it's starting to conjure up what channels you should be thinking about when you're programming your custom care or seeing them with the precision care. A lot of times we see plantar fasciitis symptoms start when there's high impact activities. Our runners, our jumpers. We also will see this with people who stand for a long time in really unsupported shoes. We see this in people who are obese. We see this in people who are flat footed. We see this in older people. Why? Because the plantar fasciated or the plantar fascia that is underneath the foot loses that elasticity with age. Like all of us, we lose the elastin and the collagen. After the age of 35, I saw a study, pff, it just tanks. Any Anybody with feet is vulnerable or susceptible to this injury. What are we going to see for our symptoms? They're going to grab the sole of their foot. They can have very sudden symptoms. They can have, oh, my foot was hurting for a couple of days. I went to Disneyland. I walked around on bare feet or I walked around in flip-flops for a while. And then that really set things off. They will have heel pain taking those first steps in the morning. So we call this First step pain. This will often subside as we walk around only to return late in the afternoon or evening. Why does that happen? It was like what well, we talked about last weekend with Dr. McMakin shoulders. Like, why does it wake me up in the middle of the night? Well, a couple different reasons. But first thing in the morning, are we were lying down. The foot is we think of it as being avascular, but it's quite vascularized. But we're not standing on it. We're not getting the same sort of influx of blood flow to the area. So it like dries out in the middle of the night. So we're not standing on it. We have poor blood circulation. So things tend to tighten up in the night while we're sleeping. So you get out of bed and people are hobbling around until things loosen up a little bit. And then they start to feel better. Some people will have this gradual onset of long lasting pain. So we'll see them for those of you doing gait analysis, we'll see those shortened strides with running or walking. We'll see weight shifting. We'll see that offloading towards the front of the foot away from the heel. So when you're doing your standing assessment or your gait assessment or your squat assessment, you'll see people be more anterior chain dominant. They're going to load over the toe a lot more as they were not going to sit back through that heel as much. So some imaging What you can see here, typically we see bone spurs with plantar fasciitis, almost 50% of people. Again, I think the stat is a little bit higher, but approximately 50% of people with plantar fasciitis are also going to have a heel spur. They may not know that they have it, but it doesn't make, it shouldn't make your head spin when you see that, when you think about the mechanics, right? So that longitudinal arch is affected, the attachments onto the calcaneum are pulling off the calcaneum. And what happens is the body tries to repair that and we get this buildup of osteocytes. And then before you know it, we have this really cute bone spur projecting out of the heel. So the popular theories that the bone spur develops when the plantar fascia pulls away from the heel from overuse, poor support, weight gain, and flattening of the arches. The other demographic that gets this not surprising is pregnant women. Not as if they are going through enough, then we have to deal with plantar fasciitis. Typically those heel spurs, if they're diagnostically found, the spur itself doesn't cause a ton of pain. It's that connected tissue that's around it, that's pulling on it, that's causing the pain. Not to say if you didn't poke them, that wouldn't be irritating, but that wouldn't be where my go-to would be. The bone spur didn't come from outer space. So bone spurs from platter fasciitis are pretty much the equivalent of any kind of bone pathology that we see with Osgood-Schlatter's. So the bone didn't get it that way itself. It came from a chronic tensile pull. I believe we call this Wolf's Law. So treating the bone in this case is only going to get you so far because the bone just didn't start to become irritated out of the blue. So in this case, we want to make sure we are treating the connective tissue first and re-educating the mechanics as we are doing this. So it's all tying together. So your application, I'll typically do something like this, a towel high up, or I'll sandwich the feet, one on the dorsal part, one on the plantar part, and then tape those guys together. So we're treating the cause first. We're treating the tissue that is under stress that caused it to tear and break under pressure. 124, torn and broken. Where is it torn? It's the tendon. It's a connective tissue. It's the fascia. It's the periosteum. That's what's causing the pain in that calcaneum the most. The tissue is also inflamed, both acutely and chronically. So that should make you think about 40 and 284. Things are hardened in there, right? They're calcified. They are scarred. So our favorite plantar fascia frequency go tos right off the bat, 124. And then 42849113. We want to run that in the periosteum, 783, the tendon, the bursa, the connective tissue, all the little bits and pieces that you can find in the foot. You're going to run through them, but especially the tendon and especially the periosteum the nerve is going to help also. So that's it in English, what I just wrote through. So again, we want to break down the mechanism. We're all about making those colorful charts in our brains to figure out how did this plantar fasciitis start in the first place? What is causing the bone spur? Is it more than just wear and tear from high impact activities? Let's do an assessment. Let's make sure that there's nothing going on with that talocruel joint. We want to do some range of motion with dorsiflexion and plantar flexion. We want to intrinsically look at the tarsals. We want to look at the metatarsals. We want to make sure that there's nothing else going on there that's inhibiting the motion from happening. And then, of course, we want to look at the posterior compartment of the lower leg for abnormalities and imbalances. Everything that attaches through the leg to the calcaneum lives in that lower leg. So if you are running, if you are jumping, The lower leg is propelling you to do that. So that is where you're going to typically start is in the calf, starting in that lower leg. We want to mobilize the, oh, getting a foot massage, probably my favorite thing on the planet. So plantar fasciitis treatment I get it, not everybody loves to touch people's feet, but it's so good to help mobilize the the tarsals, the metatarsals, doing plantar flexion, dorsiflexion, inversion, eversion, doing everything that you can with the foot. What's incredible is 397, so sclerosis in the fat pad. Think about the bottom of the feet, tons of adipose under there. So you need to use three with 97 and using your thumbs, mobilizing, if it totally grosses you out to touch the foot, then have them, you can, I just ordered a whole bunch for the clinic. They're like these hard little myofascial balls. Have them roll their foot over a myofascial ball. So put the ball on the floor, put a face cloth on top of the ball, clip your leads into it so that the plantar part of their foot is touching a wet face cloth. Put another cloth higher up on the lower leg, secure it with the sports wrap or tape or however you're gonna do it. And then they're self-mobilizing if if touching somebody's feet grows you out. And there's people out there. Bilateral platter fasciitis, eh. I might be thinking about the cord in that case. Anything that's bilateral, I typically will go neck to feet to start 40 and 10. We could also do 81 and 10 in that case. The big thing with plantar fasciitis, I think that people tend to not hover around as much time as we really want to increase the vitality and the secretions to that avascular structure. I know the foot is, I'm going to get blowback. I know the foot is vascularized, but the fat pad is pretty avascular. So we want to increase the vitality and secretions to all that stuff, the fat pad, the fascia, the connective tissue, and then helping it glide. So when you're doing that mobilization with your hands with that patient, or if you're having them roll their foot on a a ball, 40 and 81 on your a channels to the adipose or the connective tissue can be amazing 49 81 with 77 142 and then like i said don't forget the posterior compartment when you're mobilizing for scarring in that area so are you doing your manual therapy to the lower compartment have them roll on on a foam roller you can do that as well and then this is just a slide showing some of the anatomy, like you said, like, where did this all start? This is when, and I think we were talking about this last weekend about, do you treat deep to superficial or superficial to deep? And the answer is yes. But in this case, this is when I start thinking I need to start from the outside in so we can work with the fascia. We can work with the muscle bellies. We can work with that connective tissue. Those of you who are watching live and those of you who are watching this on YouTube, this slide is a great idea. What I was talking about, when the muscle belly turned into a tendon, you have this juncture and you see this here, with the Achilles insertion, all that white part is 77, that is connective tissue, but you go from muscle belly, like 62 to 77 to 191 to periosteum. Hopefully that made sense working outside in. Releasing the tight fascia is very helpful in the posterior compartment of the leg. Releasing tight fascia that has encapsulated, right, or constricted around the soleus and those deeper muscles like the peroneals can be very helpful. The foot can't move itself. So here, this slide just shows you all those deep tendons that go through the Achilles area and attach onto what we would think of the plantar fascia when in fact it's that flexor hallucius longus it's a flexor digitorum longus so we have muscles and tendon insertions on that plantar part it's not just plantar fascia it's not just the fascia like i said in the case of starting superficial it can be very helpful to start to release the fascia and then you can get it For good circulation, you can create space that way. When the fascia is not constricting everything, you have space to sink in and treat the muscle and the muscle belly and the connective tissue. And then you can go deeper. The muscle and the connective tissue continue to unwind those adhesions. You get deeper and deeper. And then you can treat the periosteum and the periosteum can now heal because why? It has all that yummy, delicious circulation because you've unlocked those doors from up above. Hopefully that makes sense. So sometimes there's a strategy to how you're treating with plantar fasciitis. I have found over 10 years of wanting to drive my car off a bridge after being unsuccessful in the clinic, that it is very helpful to follow these steps sort of the way way I just Talked about it. Maintaining the stable state is always important. It is very important when it comes to plantar fasciitis because we're standing all the time. So, to borrow Carol's and one of Carol McMechanisms, it's like bailing out a sinking boat with one hand and shooting holes in the floor of that boat with the other. So Typically, people can't stay off their feet. Do we want them to stay off their feet, though? No, we want to encourage blood flow and circulation and mobility and all those things. So the people that come to your clinic, they're like, I have to stay off my feet. A little bit is going to be re-educating them. No, we want you to move. We want you to do exercises. Obviously, we want these exercises and mobilizations to be pain-free. But there's going to be some re-education of how do we get them to move pain-free? Can we get them to heat up the area first? If they don't have a custom care, a foot soak in some warm water can help. I will tell patients to take a pickle jar a glass jar, fill it up with hot water, and then roll their foot over that glass jar in the morning, because that will help mobilize things. So those first steps can be a little bit better. First steps can be better. More steps can be better. And we can get them walking and running and doing all the things that they need to do and that they love to do. Again, always addressing the range of motion, making sure bilateral strength and length with symmetry is is always indicated with the foot. And then programming those custom cares. If you have somebody that's never not going to be on their feet, if you have an athlete, that's always running and jumping they're this is going to be a chronic thing for them. This is where you're like, you know what, you might need to purchase a custom care because you will have them out of pain. At this point, you will have them mobilized and feeling good and doing things. And they're going to want to stay like that. So if this is somebody who's a cashier and is standing a lot, if this is an athlete that's running and jumping a lot, if this is anybody that just is going to be applying the force, somebody who is working in high heels and is not going to get out of those, those crazy shoes, this is an indication where you know what you might want a custom care so that you can treat yourself after work every night or treat yourself in the morning. And I'm going to get to the questions really quickly before I go to my favorite Osgood sweater. So Cynthia, yes, post the email. It is can, no, it will be info at fsmsports365.com. At the end of this, I will have that information up there and Cynthia will. Try to get to your question after. I will not email slides directly. So if you just go to, if you can email us and then put slides, please, in the subject line, then I can get those cranked out to everybody. So, really quickly, Oswald Slaughter's, it's exactly like plantar fasciitis, only it's in the knee. It's like a bone spur. We see this condition all the time with teenagers. I hate it when I see, oh, boys get it. No, girls get it just as as quickly as boys do. We see it a lot of time when there's a growth spurt. We'll see the primary symptom as being that painful lump below the kneecap. Anybody that's active, hopefully children are active. So we'll see really elite athletes getting this just as much as your recreational kid athletes getting this. Your textbook definition will say, and I have seen, the condition usually resolves on its own once the child's bones stop growing. And the advice is going to be rest and stop doing activity until the symptoms resolve. Can you imagine being in the room with me when these doctors were telling me to do this with my teenagers? that was funny, but didn't go over very well. I roll. Here's just a quick little radiograph view of what Osgood slaughters can look like. The, the bony changes happening on that patellar tendon again, same chart for a reason, because your goals are going to be the same as what we saw with those other conditions, get them out of playing, get them out of pain, get them playing again by decreasing the inflammation, improving the healing, which is going to improve the tissue health and the flexibility and pliability of the quads, the quadriceps. What's happening with that Osgood slaughters is that the quads are pulling, pulling that tuberosity, patellar tuberosity. And if the quads were in decent shape, I get it that that bone, the femur might've grown that's causing that tension. But if the quads had decent flexibility and pliability, I guarantee you they wouldn't be in the condition that they are. The vast majority of the teenagers that I have treated were very tight with their fascia and their muscle. And that's what got them into this predicament, not just the femur decided to grow really fast. So your frequencies should revolve around that same thing that we saw in plantar It's removing the inflammation and trauma from the periosteum, the bone, the tendon, the cartilage, maybe the capsule and the connective tissue. 40, that's the inflammation that's happening in through there. But yeah, a lot of it is torn and broken, right? That's essentially what's happening. Your big go-to with osgood Slaughter is just the bone spur. It's torn and broken in the periosteum. This is what's going to get these teenagers out of pain instantly and That is where you need to target your frequencies to promote the healing. It is traumatized from the muscles pulling on it via the tendon because everything was so tight and the femur decided to take off. So I do using 94, 321 and nine, that's the basics, the trauma, the paralysis, that is exactly what's happening in this area. I will use that in the periosteum. I will use it in the bone. So 59 and 39, I will use it on the joint surface. I will use it on the capsule. I will use it in the connective tissue. So this is my Osgood-Schlatter recipe that I really like. This is this picture is just what it looks like, treat, like treatment in my clinic. Super easy foam roller under the knee. You want to open up that joint space. You want to put a little bit of tension, traction, if you will, on that knee. So, contacts right on those tuberosity, the tibial tuberosity that's irritated, and then behind the knee. And then they can have a little snooze. And I like to condense the current just as tightly as possible. So, that's one way you can apply it. This is just another view. Bumblebee on top, Christmas tree on the bottom in this case. Runner's knee is going to be exactly the same. Runner's knee to me is like, frozen shoulder it's such a garbage can diagnosis of somebody that's oh there's that runner again that has knee pain so let's just call it runner's knee you will see it chondromalacia patella anterior knee pain syndrome patellofemoral malalignment syndrome it band syndrome you name it someone's knee is sore because the connective tissue is not functioning the way that it should you need to do your three d's decipher, diagnose, and dive in. So assess what's going on, just like everything else that will typically help clarify what condition you're really working at. Patellar tracking issues have to be identified. If that's not in your wheelhouse, refer to somebody who can do really good gait assessment and biomechanics to see what the patella is doing. And then we support that in my world by customizing protocol specifically for the dysfunction. So runners need just like osgood Slaughters, I'm gonna sandwich those guys. I'm gonna, you could go up higher so that the the contact is right above the patella, but then right underneath that popliteal fossa. So we're condensing the current that way. Oh, I'm going backwards here. Sorry guys. So again, in that acute phase, if you have athletes that see you and trust you, and they're saying, hey, I got these new shoes, I'm going from road running to trail running, and my knee is really sore, and the knee is sore underneath the patella, or it's below, you want to get them out of pain. So I don't care what the mechanism is, I'm going to figure that out. But I know that 40, 124, and I really do 321 are going to be my A-channel go-tos to get that patient out of pain really fast. And then, especially when it comes to the knee, we have the patella that has that joint surface, has the periosteum, has the attachment sites, the patellar tendon itself, 191. Those are gonna be my B favorites. That's what I'm gonna go to immediately. Treatment number one, minute number one to get everything deregulated. And then of course, in that subacute long-term sort of plan, if you have an athlete, if you have a runner, a triathlete, somebody, you might need to figure out how to get them to get on a custom care more regularly for those protocols. In my world, I'm renting one in that those initial two weeks, especially so that as they're running, I can have them put on a custom care right after so that they can get that recovery at night. I don't want to tell somebody to stop running typically. And then that neural patterning that we talk about in the sports core that we talked about, at very least, we want to make sure as that pain is coming out, as we are getting more flexibility, more pliability in the quadriceps, we're going to get them standing, doing like a micro squat, doing some mobilizations with 81, right off the bat, maybe it's 40, 89 right away because they're scared to recreate the pain pattern But we want to really promote the function in my world right away. I have a quick trigger that I want to talk about before I let you guys all go. It's the IT band. T for those of you listening or watching that tell your patients to roll their IT band, that's that's up to you. I will never tell anybody to roll their IT band. I think it's dangerous. My good friend, Charlie Weingroff, who I interviewed a little while ago on the podcast, if you search him up on Instagram, he had this wonderful video all about this exact topic. I implore you to look at the anatomy when we talk about rolling the IT or rolling the quad. The IT band itself does not contract or stretch, right? It does not have actin and myosin to do that. It is impossible, anatomically speaking. The iliotibial band or iliotibial tract is fascia that spans from the iliac crest of your hip via the tensor fascia lata, which is a muscle, the TFL, that IT band runs the length of the lateral leg and inserts to the knee it is composed of dense, fibrous, avascular connective tissue. I put that in red for a reason. Everybody say it together. We have, again, non-contractile, avascular, dense fibrotic connective tissue, and people wanna roll it. Why? I get it. You think that you want to mobilize the IT over top of the quad, but there are better ways. So I have this slide of this girl. That's what my face typically looks like when people tell me how much they roll their IT bands. I always think it's better to mobilize that tissue instead of hammering it and creating more inflammation. What happens is when you have scarring between the IT band or adhesions between the IT band and the quadriceps and you roll it, you're going to set off this cascade. It ends up getting trapped in there because it has nowhere to go because the IT band is a vascular. It cannot pull anything out. So let's use 49 and 81 to increase the vitality and the secretions to that area to get the glide. So we use 49 and 81 on the IT band and 77 and 142 with the connective tissue and fascia. You can sandwich it. So get them to lay on their side, um, towel across the IT, towel across the adductors. And that's how you treat those IT bands that typically need to be like sticky and stuck and People want to roll them. So once you get the length and the health of that tissue, that will be better. I'm going to just send you these. I'll put these slides up. I did it. There's my email, Kim, but it'd be a lot faster if you send slide requests to info at fsmsports365.com. I get a little help. And then that way that email will be looked at faster. And if you have any specific questions about what I talked about, then you can email me at kim at fsmsports365.com. I'm on Instagram at handle is fsmsports365. I have a new a podcast where every two weeks or so I'm interviewing a new strength coach or a trainer or PT that's on the game changers that just is on Spotify right now. And it's on YouTube. I'm going to go to the Q and a super quick. Yes. slides, slides. How long would you have it on each setting? So for any of these, I am, I'm always usually with them. I'm going a minute until it's Feeling smushy. Again, 124 is time dependent. So you have to figure out what are you, um, what are you treating? Is it smushy? Are you able to mobilize the area? It it all depends. I wish there was a formula for that as well. But I'm gonna stop sharing. Thanks everybody for coming. This was a lot of fun. Hopefully I didn't talk too fast, but it's going to be recorded and you guys can listen to me babble on and on again after. Happy to share the slides next week. Oh yeah, I have to give you guys this September play by play. Let me open up the calendar here because there's some awesome stuff. So next Wednesday, September 14th, you're not gonna want to miss it. I'm gonna have Dr. David Burke and Dr. Ben Catholi together. We're gonna have a trifecta meeting. So that's gonna be on the 14th. On the 21st, I have Dr. Jennifer Sosnowski, fantastic functional medicine doctor from Scottsdale. It's gonna be talking about Lyme and all these hard to treat things. And then on the 28th, I just got confirmation. I have a fantastic PT group, hopefully from Ohio, that's going to be joining us. Andrew Fawcett has been at our advanced meetings a ton. And I went out there years ago to teach some of his PTs, the FSM sports modules. So it's going to be a pretty like physical medicine based chat we're going to have with these folks on the 28th. But that way we shake things up a little bit. Hope you enjoyed it today. You're not going to want to miss the next week's. Thank you everybody for the the positive feedback. It's always strange without Carol, especially by myself, but thought I would talk about some easy things that hopefully set some light bulbs off for some people and happy to share everything with you. So thanks for coming. We'll see you next Wednesday with Dr. Dave Burke and Dr. Ben Cattoli and we'll see you all then. Bye guys. The Frequency-Specific Microcurrent Podcast has been produced by Frequency-Specific Seminars for entertainment, educational, and information purposes only. The information and opinion provided in the podcast are not medical advice, do not create any type of doctor-patient relationship, and unless expressly stated, do not reflect the opinions of its affiliates, subsidiaries, or sponsors, or the hosts, or any of the podcast guests or affiliated professional organizations.